0: I had uh, fully planned to spend several weeks in uh, looking and continuing to look in the Psalms, but I have to be very honest with you. Everywhere I turn, God keeps bringing me back to the need to be dependent upon Him in prayer. And, uh, you know, I had planned this year with the agreement of the session to teach on prayer and uh, to help move us as a church uh, to be more dependent upon the Lord in prayer, but I I have to just tell you that God has been pressing that upon my heart more and more recently, uh, the importance of prayer. So this morning, rather than looking at uh, the Psalms, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, if you would, Colossians chapter 1, and I want us to look at uh, Paul's prayer here. Uh, in the first 14 verses. And we're going to actually be camping out here for a couple of weeks and and looking at this. And today we're just going to look at verses 3-8 through and specifically Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the church. And so uh, here now as I I read God's Word. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Uh, Let's pray before we look at God's word this morning. Lord, as we come to you today, uh, my prayer, God, is really the prayer that Moses prayed in Deuteronomy 32. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Amen. As we look at the book of Colossians, you know, it's not unusual for Paul to open a letter With a prayer, and especially a prayer of thanksgiving. He has done that as he has written to numerous churches. Uh, Just read his epistles and you'll see that pattern over and over and over. And he gives thanks to God for these churches that he has visited and that he is now writing to. Many of the churches are ones that he planted. He was a great church planter. But Colossians is different. It's different in the sense that Paul has never met these believers. Um, As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 4, Paul talks about praying for them. He goes, since we heard of your faith. This isn't something that he has experienced personally. It's something that he has heard and he has prayed for them. Now, for those of you that may not know, Colossae is about, well, if you know where Ephesus is, it's on the coast, right? And about 80 miles inland in the uh, Lycus River Valley, in what's today Western Turkey, was where this town of Colossae was. Now, at one time, it was a very prominent city. But by the time of the New Testament, um, the, it would, had actually become a very small town. Uh, it was it sort of lived in the shadows of its neighbors. You may have heard of those towns, Laodicea and Heriopolis. Uh, both of those towns, much larger, much more prominent. This was just a you know small town. We as Kansans, we understand small towns, don't we, right? Um, but, uh, so, very uh, insignificant in some ways. Uh, biblical scholars believe that the Colossian church came into being during Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus. Uh, if you remember, Paul was uh, spent a couple of years in Ephesus, and he was preaching the gospel, and the Lord was using it in a mighty way. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that during that time, it says, all the residents of Asia, which would have included Colossae, right, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. There was just a great preaching of God's word that was going on. But it wasn't Paul that preached the gospel to the church at Colossae. As a matter of fact, it appears as you sort of take the pieces of Scripture and piece them together and and what we know it, it uh, seems like uh, what, what happened and what brought the gospel to Colossae was Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And a couple of men from Colossae came. There may have been more, but we know of a couple. One, you may have heard of a Epaphras, which we read of in, uh, in our passage today in verse 7, but also in chapter 4, verse 12 of the book of Colossians. But the other, a very well-known man to the, uh, the Christian church, and that's Philemon. And Philemon uh, uh, and uh, Epaphras, both Paul considered fellow workers. That's how he referred to them. He had a great affection for them, and, and he was a, saw himself as a partner in ministry with them. As a matter of fact, Philemon hosted a church in his home, most likely in Colossae. And Epaphras um, was the one who took the gospel to Colossae. And most likely the one who started the church. And he did that right around the time of Paul's first imprisonment. And so even though Paul, you know, wasn't the church planter that planted this church, he had a great affection for this congregation and he prayed for them. Uh, Especially as he heard that not only had they received the gospel, but there were those false teachers who were coming into the church to try to... uh, direct the focus of the church away from Jesus Christ. Most likely Gnostics who came in and they began to teach that while it was good to believe in Jesus for salvation, is Jesus really enough? Don't you maybe need just a little bit more? And brothers and sisters, if there's anybody that understands that question today, it should be you and I as we live in the church in America today. Because that's oftentimes the question that even churches are asking. Is Jesus enough? You know, is Jesus enough for a man to stand up in a a room full of people and preach the word of God? Or do we need a little bit more? You know, we do live in a day and time where everybody's used to videos and visual aids and things like that. So maybe we need to sort of sure up our preaching with video clips and PowerPoint presentations and maybe even a little horse and pony show or something like that to keep people's attentions and stuff so that, you know, they can hear the Word of God because is Jesus really enough? Or maybe in our counseling as we're talking about people and the the problems that they live with and the things that they are wrestling with and struggling with and what it means to live in this fallen world, is really the word of God sufficient? Is Christ enough really to deal with the problems of people's lives? Or maybe do we need to turn to secular psychology and and those things and borrow those uh, methods and, and tactics so that we could really give people help because they are very messy. And is Jesus really enough? Or, or maybe in, in our parenting, you know, we, we just really struggle and so we're just looking for that silver bullet, that thing that will just help us to deal with little Johnny's heart, right? Because we're just wrestling with him. He is, you know, I love him to death, he's my son, but he's a little demon sometimes, right? And you, we're just wrestling with this and we're just thinking, if I could just find something, because really, is Jesus enough? Is that all little Johnny needs? And so, you know, we struggle with those things. So we can understand this. And so the the sticks come into the church and they say, it's, it's fine if you, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's great. But if you want the fullness of the Christian life, that word fullness is very important in the book, of Colossians, as we'll see next week. But if you want the fullness of the Christian life, as you experience the struggles and the stresses of of battling that uh, ongoing influence of sin in your life, then you need the practice of strict self-denial and sacrifice. And if you look at chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, you see where evidently they must have been Uh, taught things about matters of food and drink and religious days and worshiping angels and visions and things like that. And, And Paul, though, as he writes this letter to them, one of the things that's interesting is while he does address this attack upon the church, he doesn't begin by just dealing with that problem. Instead, he begins by giving thanks for the Colossian church. Because here are these poor pagan people without god without hope in the world and guess what brothers and sisters they have found jesus christ or maybe a more biblical way of saying that is jesus christ has found them right he has chosen them and their lives have been changed and there are some remarkable things that are happened because christ is at work in their life and so paul just gives thanks to god for That wonderful work that God is doing in their life, and so he says in verse 3 We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, you know. Uh, and, and then in verse 9, which we'll look at next week, he says, And so from that day, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. We just see these ways in which Paul is praying, it's almost like he says, Look, uh, um you know I've never met you personally but as soon as Epaphras came back and he told us that he went and he shared the gospel and there were those who believed in this church that was planted and stuff uh, I added you to my prayer list you know I wanted to remember to pray for you and to give thanks and so Paul does give thanks on behalf of these believers and you know what a great reminder Uh, for us as believers that whenever we see the Lord work we should pray wherever we see God at work we should pray and give thanks to him Not, not just praying for the work you know for church planting and church revitalization and missions things like that I mean we should pray for those things but not only to pray for those things but to give thanks to God for his continued work amongst mankind. You know, I think oftentimes in the church today, we're not as concerned about witnessing and evangelism as we ought to be. I mean, we were talking about in Sunday school things that, you know, we're just sort of dull to that, you know, should outrage us. You know, but one of the things that we just sort of are dull to in the church is sharing our faith. And yet I wonder if we took the time to thank God wherever we saw Him at work in the church It would stir our hearts towards witnessing and evangelism as we see that God is still powerfully building up His kingdom. Amen? Amen. And we ought not to forget that and give thanks to God for His mighty work. And even as we consider our own prayers, do all of our prayers and petitions revolve around our own families, around our own church? Maybe it revolves around praying for our our circle of friends or are our eyes on the great work that God is doing in the world today. Now, don't get me wrong. We ought to be praying for our families. We ought to be praying for our church. We ought to be praying for our small circle of friends. But if that's the furthest reach of our prayers, then we could become very introverted. We could become focused only upon what impacts me, which can be an expression of our own self-centeredness. I, I like what one person said. They said our prayers may be an index of how small and self-centered our world actually is. Ouch. I, unfortunately, I relate to that comment, I think, too much as I, as I see that even in my own life. Of course, you know, it, it is hard to pray for Christians everywhere, you know, and if we do that, it's, sometimes it's only in a general way at best. But it, it will do us good to pray and to give thanks to God for what he's doing in the lives of other believers that we do not know. And brothers and sisters, that's why as a church, if you look in the bulletin, we have different sections to, to help you with that. That's why we have that partners in prayer. As we are praying for other churches in Andover, not PCA churches, not Reformed churches, but just brothers and sisters that are in other churches all over this city of Andover and praying for them, praying for churches in our presbytery uh, that the Lord would work in them, praying even for Christians in other parts of the world. And that's why we have an emphasis when we pray for a different country every month and we're praying for Kenya and for the Lord to work in the midst of that church and giving thanks to him. But also when we hear of God at work in more spiritually desolate places in the world, places that aren't desolate in terms of culture or uh, you know financial status or something like that, maybe very successful countries like England and Germany but spiritually that are very, very, very desolate. And then countries that are maybe more poor, like Bangladesh or places like that where there's such a Muslim influence there. And just praying for the church, that the church giving thanks to God for the work that he is doing, even in dark, dark countries like that. Now, as we think about Paul's... Thanksgiving, we, we see that there's a couple of reasons why he gives thanks. And that's where I want to spend the bulk of my time this morning in this sermon, by looking at why does Paul give thanks. And first of all, he gives thanks for God's work of salvation. If you look at verses 3 through 5, he said, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, and because of the hope that's laid up in heaven. Now, do you recognize that? Faith, hope, and love, right? These are are great Christian values, and these are the the three great Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, um, that we see oftentimes throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And and even as as Paul is writing to these uh, Christians at Colossae, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, he addresses them as the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, why would he do that? How does he know? He's in prison. He's not been there. He's not seen. Well, because the proof of the pudding is this, that he has heard of their faith and their hope and their love, and and these three are a sort of, if you could, as one uh, author put it, it's an apostolist, apocalypse, apostol, it, anyway, it's apostle shorthand for genuine Christianity. Because that's what a Christian is. It's someone in whom God has worked to the point to where there is faith, there's the evidence of faith, and love, and hope. And I want to just look at these very briefly this morning, Under this heading. First of all, we see the faith in the Savior. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ. Now, faith is always mentioned first in the trio, okay? And there's a reason for that, because apart from faith, there is no Christian experience. Not just faith in faith for faith's sake, but He's very specific who the faith is in. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's something you have to understand, brothers and sisters, that with biblical faith, there always has to be an object of that faith. If you listen to the world, they sort of characterize us as a people who just have faith in faith. You know, we're just like stupid or something. And we just, you know, we're just blindly following something. But that's not true. The Bible talks about we have to have an object and something or someone, which in, in this case is faith in Jesus Christ. And so when someone says that he or she has faith, the question that we should ask them is this: Faith in what? Is it faith in reincarnation? Is it faith that God is good? Is it faith in faith? You know, salvation does not come by believing in belief. Or even in a set of doctrines or creeds. When you become a Christian, you don't become a Christian because all of a sudden you, you adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith, which our church believes. No, that's not it. Salvation comes by believing in Jesus Christ and knowing that He is the only one who can provide salvation for us from our sinful hearts and, and the way of living only for ourselves. Uh, when John G. Patton was translating the Bible in the Outer Islands off the west coast of Scotland, he was searching for just the exact word to, to translate that word believe. And finally he found it, and the word that he used meant to lean your whole weight upon. To lean your whole weight upon. You see, saving faith is more than just an assent, just saying, I believe that that's true. Saving faith involves that knowledge, that assent, but most importantly, that trust. And I know I've overused this illustration to death, but that's okay. If you go to your grave and you think only of this illustration, then fantastic. I've done my job. But it's just like, faith is just like a chair. I could say to you, I believe that chair will hold me. You know, I really do. I have knowledge. I I see how that chair is made. It looks pretty solid, and uh, I believe that it will hold me. But it is not true faith until I sit down in that chair and it is actually holding me. And it's the same way with Jesus Christ. We can believe all kinds of things about Jesus Christ. But it's until we are saying we're putting all of our eggs in one basket. And Jesus is that basket. And it's a good basket. It's a worthy basket. It's a faithful basket. And it will sustain me to the end. And and that's what the Colossians despite their Gnostic detractors, had done. They had put their trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's something to celebrate, to see how God is at work in their life. And so he rejoices. But then Paul continues to laud the Colossians for their love that they had for all the saints. Now, for for Paul, faith uh, proved its reality by expressing itself through love Galatians five verse six right that's how you know if someone has true faith is if you see the love that they have for all the saints. there are many people who say they're Christians and yet they just live their lives for themselves. you don't see any love for God, you don't see love for others you see a lot of love for themselves but not much love for anybody else and and brothers and sisters, in that case you have a, a, a right to question. The, the validity of their profession of faith. Because when God does a work in someone's heart that he gives them faith, he also produces in them love. Romans chapter five talks about how God has poured his love out into our hearts. Um, God's love is great. Loving God is seen in how one loves his neighbor and particularly another believer. John 13 verses 34 and 35. Um, and, you know, like I said, we've all met people who claim to be good Christians, who were upstanding. They were honest. They may be even Orthodox or even Reformed. And so you think they have to be a Christian, right? But they're very unloving. Very unloving. Very spiteful. Very unforgiving. And, and, and they had a loveless goodness. A, an orthodoxy without charity. And and whenever that's the case, then their faith is questionable. It's sort of it's sort of like the quote that Mark Twain says. He said, you know, he was speaking of a man and he said he's a good man in the worst sort of way. <laughs> and that's what a person is like who professes to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ but has not love. What does God say? He's just a noisy symbol, right? He's a gong and he's just making a lot of noise. you know when when Chuck Colson was serving his prison sentence after what the Watergate scandal, uh, he had just become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his faith was truly tested. Uh, his wife did not understand this whole born again stuff that he was talking about. His son had been picked up on drug charges, and Chuck Colson himself was very despondent and he was struggling in his faith. but God met him in his misery, and the Lord used a group of men, actually a group of Christians in Washington, D.C., and amongst them was Senators Hatfield, Hughes, and Cui, and they were praying for him. And as a matter of fact, Senator Cui discovered an old law that allowed an innocent man to serve a prison term for another. And so Cui actually volunteered to take Chuck Colson's place so that he could leave prison and he would fulfill his term. Now, Chuck Colson didn't take him up on that, but uh, Charles Colson was encouraged to see the love that these men had for him. You may have read this week about uh, you know this, the shooting in Nashville, in which we, we pray for Covenant Church and Covenant School, uh, which you may not have heard. I think we posted it to our Facebook page, but uh, what you may not have heard in the news is that... Families from Covenant actually raised the funds to pay for the funeral for the shooter. Because that's what Christians do. That's what love is. That's nothing, un- nothing unusual, not for a Christian. Because that's, brothers and sisters, the depth of the work that God does in the hearts of his children. It's a beautiful thing when you see in the church love for all the saints. Not, not just for some of the saints, not just for our best friends in the church, right? But for all the saints is what he says. And, and that's what made the early church so amazing and so enticing in the ancient world. You know, here you have barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant joining hands, sitting at one table at the Lord's Supper and partaking together because they knew themselves to all be one in Jesus Christ. There was not one that was better than another, but they loved one another. They had never had anything like this in their culture. And so the world looks on. You know, genuine love for all was the cause for Paul's joyous celebration Of the apostolic church and it is as a cause for celebration even today in the church as well you see christians are not identified by their bible knowledge or their moral standards or the ministry (coughs) participation or their good works or their spiritual gifts or any of those kind of things the way you identify a christian is by his love for god and his love for one another so safe people are identified as safe people by their love for others. Then finally, we see under this heading, the hope of salvation in verse five. Uh, Paul says, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Um, hope is a place last, I really think, bec- uh, in this, because Paul saw faith um, and love as springing from that hope. Now, you might ask, how did, how did that be? Well, as, as pagans, the Colossians had been without God and without hope in this world. I mean, if you really want to understand the hopelessness that unbelievers have, you need to have unbelieving friends. That's just one reason why you should have unbelieving friends. But if you do have friends who are unbelievers or co-workers or whoever, you will oftentimes see the despondency in their lives and it just breaks your heart. It sort of reminds me of an illustration that John Maxwell uh, Gave of a small town in Maine that was supposed to be the site of a a hydroelectric plant. And so the company was going to put up this dam. And so what they're going to do is they're going to end up submerging the city that was right there by the river and it would be underwater. So they gave the people plenty of time to move out, but they gave them a long time to move out. But one of the things that they noticed is after they announced that the dam was going to be put in place, even though it was going to be, I think, a number of years, uh, then the town began to go downhill. People quit painting things. They quit fixing the roads. They quit doing all these different things that you would normally do to maintain your town. And it got to be really uh, shabby, even though it was still quite a ways off before the people were supposed to move out of the city or out of the town. And one of the citizens explained it this way. They said, when there is no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. Did you hear that? When there's no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. And that's where the world lives, brothers and sisters. They don't have any hope. Now, they try to create hope. Maybe if I put my hope in money, maybe that'll help. Or maybe my reputation or you know, maybe just having the perfect family or whatever it might be. They, they try all these things to try to somehow create hope. And yet at the end of the day, they are still hopeless because all those things are just, will crumble away. Only Jesus Christ and the promise he gives to spend all eternity with him is the true hope. Well, then for these Colossians, then the gospel from Epaphras and Philemon and the wonderful, surprising salvation of hope in heaven came to them, and they saw this, and, and uh, that hope together uh, just... Um, it just bound them together as brothers and sisters in, in love and great faith. Uh, how important the hope of glory is. Paul tells us that the hope of the return of Christ... And the heavenly reward makes all the difference in the way we live our lives. You know, one phrase, if you, if you hang out with my family very long, one of the phrases you hear us use often is, well, in light of eternity. You know, so in other words, something goes wrong with your life, and you can say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. But you know, in light of eternity, you know, Romans 8 said it's not worth comparing with the glory that we will see. And the more that we live our lives in light of eternity, the more... Uh, we are fostered in our faith and in our love for one another. Let me just read a couple of verses. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful verses as we struggle with sin? As we get stuck with addictions and and the things that we're wrestling with. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Great words to us. But John talks about the same thing. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. You know, one of the things that we talked about at Twin Lakes this week was how oftentimes in churches, and then somebody was admonishing us as pastors, they said, you know, do you guys ever have this experience in your churches? Where as Christians think about sanctification, they go... Oh yeah, sanctification. I'm struggling. You know, I just seems like I never can conquer that sin. I'm always wrestling. And that we oftentimes see sanctification as is a great burden, a weight that is upon us. And they said, But if you look at the scripture, you see that God has promised his sanctification in the life of every believer. In First Peter, he says, you will be sanctified. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. And as you look at your life, if you, as you see the way that God is working in your heart to cause your faith to grow, as you have seen the love that you have had for other people, compare that with 10 years ago. Or if you're only 9, then, you know, like <laughs> 6 years ago or something, you know. But you see that love growing, the hope that is in your heart. God is at work in his people, praise the Lord. And we need to give thanks to God for his great work of salvation and give praise and honor and glory to him. I just wonder sometimes if we don't really recognize the powerful work that God is doing in our hearts and in our church and in our world, Because one, we're listening to the news too much. But the other thing, because we're not giving thanks to God for what he is doing. But as we daily give thanks to him, we're being reminded that we have a great and a powerful God. All right, quit preaching. Okay, point number two. Thank God for the success. Paul thanks God for the success of the gospel. You know, what's the basis of the hope we have? And we see in verses 5 and 6, it is the gospel. And Paul celebrates the gospel success. Let me read the last half of verse 5 through 8. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now notice two things that he says about the gospel. Verse 5, he says that the gospel is truth. And in verse 6, he talks about the power of the gospel. Both good reasons to give thanks. First of all, we see it is the truth. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, The gospel. See, Paul's letter to the Colossians is a polemic letter. It's written to confront the false teachers sought to lead the saints away from confidence and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. And note that Paul speaks of the word of truth and the gospel simultaneously. The word of truth is the gospel and the gospel is the word of truth. The gospel is the message of the Bible. It is the word of God. And, and to share the gospel is more really than just, you know, sharing a gospel presentation. The gospel is not just about justification, about being saved. It's about living as a Christian. And it is about glorification as we spend eternity with God in heaven as well. And so the gospel is a call to live one's life according to the word of God. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Brothers and sisters, the Colossian church needed to hear this. They have these false teachers whispering in their ears. And brothers and sisters, we have false teachers whispering in our ear, in our culture, in our, from our society. But we also do even from the church telling us that maybe we need to rethink church. We need to do it a different way so we can be effective because, you know, people are just walking away from the church and so we have to do things differently. Like I said, if we're going to live in this world like the Colossians, we need the truth and the gospel is the truth. But the gospel is also the power of God. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the world the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of god in truth just as you learned it from the our beloved fellow servant so here's paul he's probably engaging in a little justified hyperbole okay you know the gospel has not really spread around the whole world quite yet in paul's ministry but it's well on its way You know, you're seeing many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're seeing many churches planted and strengthened. And and what Paul was celebrating was its dynamic power and its universality. I mean, if you think about it, you know, unlike the Gnostic elitist foolishness, Christ's good news was for everybody. And it is daily reaching new people. Have you ever thought about that? I think sometimes we think of the kingdom of God is being static. but God is continuing to pull in his elect to bring them to himself. Oh, and I just pray that we as a church would be part of that, brothers and sisters. That I would be a part of that. That my family would be a part of that. Paul was saying that the gospel was doing the same thing in every place of the world. Now you think about that with all the different cultures and all the different diversity. I mean, we're sort of a melting pot as a country and we're just having a heck of a time trying to figure out how to cope with all these differences, right? And yet the gospel permeates all those things. And it changes people to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so we see the demonstration of the power of the gospel, not a military or political or an. economic power but a a spiritual power and that's what paul says in romans chapter one for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the what the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek and so as uh as paul looked at this miracle of this little church in the this little valley it caused him to celebrate and to praise God. Brothers and sisters, um, I pray that we would be a church that would give thanks to the Lord, that we would be a church that would, would pray to Him and to love Him. It's, it's my desire that we grow in dependence of, of God in prayer. Now, I want you to hear me say I'm talking about growing in dependence upon God. Our hope is not in prayer, okay? Prayer is just the means. It's the conduit. It's, 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 it's the channel. Okay? Our hope is not in prayer. When people say prayer is powerful, it's like, no, that's not true. The God behind, the God who hears the prayers, that's where the power is. And so what we need to be is a church that is dependent upon God, not so much simply studying prayer, uh, but for us to become a praying church and I know that all of us pray to some degree and, and, uh, and, and I'm just praying that we can be, grow in our dependence upon the Lord. That we might be like John, what John Bunyan said and I'll close with this. John Bunyan said, you can, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, right? So you can do more after you've prayed. But he said, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer has to be the first thing. And that's what I'm praying that we become a church that that's our instinct. That we pray, that we take all of our needs to the Lord. That we pray and we give thanks to God when we see the things that are happening. And we are in constant communication with the Lord as we are praying to Him. Amen. Let's bow our heads uh, this morning as we meditate upon God's word as it was preached. Lord, I give thanks to you this morning uh, for your wonderful work of salvation. Uh, Lord, for the success of, of the gospel around the world, that it is the truth, that uh, we we can we know that. Lord, as we live in a world where we hear all the voices and the things that are speaking into our lives, that we can know that, that what you say is right, that that's what we are to follow. And we see the power of, of God changing the hearts of men and women and children all over the world Lord we are seeing uh, you change our hearts and we give thanks and praise to you Lord for the faith the love and the hope that you have given to us and we pray Lord that we would just grow more to love you more to rest upon You, to be dependent, to pray to You, Lord, expectantly, knowing that You are the God who is zealous to bring glory to Yourself, and You will answer our prayers according to Your will. Oh, Lord, thank You so much for these things. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, maybe they come to church for the first time or they're watching us via the live stream, and, and they feel that sense of hopelessness. They feel that sense of, of, of emptiness in, in their hearts because, God, You created them to love You and to worship You. I I pray, Lord, that they would know that You were calling to them today to come to You and to trust in You. Lord, to, to know that there is, is hope for them and that You receive them as you call them to yourself we thank you lord and pray all these things in your name amen